This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, who's our card for this week? Our card this week is Tom Nieto. Tom Nieto, catcher for the Minnesota Twins, card number 317. Okay, Tom Nieto. I'm pulling him up on the Jumbotron right now. It's a beautiful looking card. We will get to him in just a second, but we have one small bit of follow-up. David, last week on the show, I encouraged in my gratuitous manner for listeners to the show to rate and review the show and say, we don't have ads. We don't charge you know, Apple's new premium subscription. We're not on Wondery app or on the exclusive Spotify app. This is a free podcast for all the listeners. But I did want to encourage any out there who were in a gracious, grateful, giving kind of mood. There's new merch that just dropped on the Chibalote Marines site. And it is the most amazing specimen of a baseball glove I've ever seen. David, this is the Nasuno Sakana Mystery Fish Baseball Glove. Only 66,000 yen which translates to 600 American dollars. Both David and I have birthdays coming up in, in the next few weeks. If you I, saw I, us I, at the park, at Winnemac Park, throw the ball around with this Technicolor I, dream coat of a glove. It's just insane. It's insane looking. It, so we'll have a link in the show notes for anyone out there who wants to buy it. It is Technicolor dream coat colored. It's multicolored. It's uh, like eight colors on the back. On the web, on the back of the web, it has the angler fish. Around the wrist, the inside of the wrist has, I think, the dancing Nazo no Sakana maybe doing a leap. Mm-hmm. I don't know what this, like, is this an additional piece for extra stability for your wrist? It's <laughs> outstanding. I love I, this glove. I love it, too. It really, it really takes the whole concept of the evolution of the mystery fish and puts it in baseball glove form. So we would love it if you wanted to gift us that, or if you have one of these, if you end up getting one of these, please send pictures and correspondence to us. You can email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. 66,000 yen seems like a great deal. Plus international shipping. This is, this is definitely a gift for the serious baseball fan in your life. <laughs> now let's go to our card and... David, why did we pick Tom Nieto today? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, (laughs) Matt, this was, this is my fault. This is my suggestion. (laughs) I got an email from listener at Painted Cap. We've, we've referenced Painted Cap's outstanding Twitter account on this podcast before. And Andrew of Painted Cap analyzes the airbrush artwork from tops cards hockey cards baseball cards throughout the ages we had had some correspondence talking about another interest of andrews taiwanese baseball and the cpbl and i i wanted to try to find somebody who fit into both of andrews areas of expertise and the obvious choice here is tom nieto because tom nieto has been involved in the cpbl and has a painted cap and in fact, a really good example of a, a painted cap card. Well, that sounds like a great idea. You know what we should do, David, is just have Andrew come on the show and talk about the card with us. I think that's a great idea. 
Well, Andrew, welcome to the 1988 Tops podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great honor to be here. The honor is all ours, Andrew. Tell us about how you got into baseball, Taiwanese history, and all these uh, different things. Sure, thanks. I was studying Chinese language in Taiwan. I, I teach Chinese and Taiwanese history, and my college professor who knew about this interest of mine said, if you want to learn Chinese, you should go to Taiwan. Um, it's too hard to learn in China right now. This is the late 80s, early 90s. So I was in Taiwan learning Chinese, teaching English to support my Chinese classes. And I happened to move into a little shack, let's just put it, that was just a couple long blocks from the baseball stadium in Taichung, which is a big city in central Taiwan. And just for fun, I started going to the CPBL games. I didn't really understand what the league was, what it was at that time, but it was the second year of the league and just really fell in love with the league and the, the Lions in particular and, and have been a big fan since then. And so your favorite team is the Uni President Lions, sometimes called the Uni President 7-Eleven Lions. Is that 7-Eleven like the... Oh, yeah. They're the secondary sponsor. And so if you look at the full name, they're included in the long name. And just this is another uh, fun fact. Taiwan has the, the largest density of 7-Elevens in the world uh, per capita. We could have a whole podcast about 7-Elevens in Taiwan. Trust me, Andrew. I know all about this. You do? Okay. From my pod- yeah, from my podcast on convenience stores today, from both fictional, from Quickie Mart to Midwestern specialties like Come and Go, Eaton Park, etc. Is this a typical thing for American-based big brands to end up sponsoring Taiwanese baseball teams? In this case, 7-Eleven, it was introduced to Taiwan by a, a Japanese parent company. And so even though to us it's it's American, it actually kind of functions more as like a Japanese import, which is precisely the case with baseball too in Taiwan. But the great thing about 7-Elevens in Taiwan is you can pay parking tickets there. You can pay your electric bill there. You can book travel at the 7-Eleven. They're actually kind of nice. A lot of them have tables you can sit and enjoy a coffee and a snack. Well, of course, Matt already knew all of that, <laughs> but that's shocking to me. That's great. So your interest kind of was piqued by trying to learn Chinese. How did baseball become a thing in Taiwan? Is it a, the biggest sport there, or, or how exactly uh, did that come to be? It's definitely the most popular sport there. It was brought by the Japanese when they, they ruled Taiwan. In 1895, they had defeated the Qing Dynasty in a war, and part of the settlement of that war was that the Qing Dynasty gave Taiwan to the Japanese Empire. And so the Japanese ruled it from 1895 to 1945. And among the things they did during that time, especially starting in the late, the very late 19-teens after World War One, and then the early 1920s, was to try to include Taiwanese people in baseball, which, of course, at that time was also super popular in Japan. And this was one way that they tried to integrate Taiwanese people into the Japanese empire and have them be uh, subjects of the Japanese emperor it was, was through baseball. Baseball is a, a sociological tool. When did the league start? The CPBL um, started play in 1990. And, and what does CPBL stand for? It stands for Chinese Professional Baseball League. And there happens to be a lot of controversy in Taiwan these days about whether or not they should change the name because it's profoundly confusing. And it has to do with, with the fact that I mentioned that the Japanese ruled Taiwan through 1945. At the end of World War II, they have to give Taiwan to the Republic of China. That government four years later, lost the civil war to the communists and fled to Taiwan. And so the Republic of China government is still there on Taiwan. And for about 40 years, 
they were pretty serious about trying to get back to the mainland. And so they really emphasized Chinese culture, learning about Chinese geography, and so on, um, enforcing Mandarin language in Taiwan. And so the CPBL was named when that was still in effect. And so what people today say is this name is just very confusing. People think it's in China. You'll often see this in the news where if a player is maybe coming back into the major leagues after playing in Taiwan, in fact, there's a picture for the Orioles right now who played in Taiwan. And I heard this on a podcast where he was described as having played in China. He didn't play in China. <laughs> he played for the Guardians in Taiwan. But they're stuck with this name that's a relic of this old ideology of trying to fight our way back to China. Are there a lot of notable Taiwanese player imports and exports back and forth to the majors? The most famous is Chen Ming Wang, who pitched for the Yankees and shortly for the Royals and Nationals. I mean, he's, he's by far the most successful player to come out of Taiwan and pitch here. And he's, he's just absolutely beloved in Taiwan. Hong Zhi Guo pitched very well for the Dodgers for several years. These days, there are only two Taiwanese players in the major leagues, Zhu Wei Lin on the Twins and uh, Yu Chang on Cleveland. Is it more common for players to go play in Japan or Korea because of the proximity and maybe less of a jump in the level of play? That's a really good question. There are a bunch of, of Taiwanese players who play in Japan as well. Taiwanese players have been playing in Japan since the 20s. Before Taiwan had the CPBL, that was actually the path for their best players. And many of them had been Little League stars, say, in the 70s. And their professional careers would then take them to Japan. So the CPBL was a way to keep those players at home. And Taiwan just decided, we're shipping all these great players to Japan. Why not have them here and have a league for them and grow our own professional culture? I know that at one point you did send us a note about Pascual Perez. Pascual Perez, I think that we noted in, the, in his episode that he played for a short time in Taiwan and I, and I believe that three of his brothers also played in, in Taiwan. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Pascual Perez played in Taiwan in 1996, I believe, and three of his other brothers had also played there. Valerio pitched for the Brother Elephants in 1990, which was the first year of the CPBL. Vladimir pitched in one game for the Lions in 95, and Dario pitched for the Dragons in 95-96 incredible Perez connection there. And the team that, that Pasquale uh, played for is the China Times Eagles. And so that newspaper was also named long ago when the emphasis was on China and not on Taiwan, which was the only place that they actually ruled. And I think that we referenced the China Times Eagles and that they were involved in a scandal around this time. Do you want to add anything about that, about that uh, match-throwing scandal? Yes, this is really important when you talk about the CPBL. They have had several of these match-fixing scandals. I'm going back to about 96, 97, all the way through to 2009. I want to say there were probably five distinct stages of that, where local gangs who were running betting circuits on the CPBL realized that they could pay these players more to throw a game, much more than the players were actually earning. And so it became a really serious problem. And then the Eagles were spectacular in the way that the entire team was bought off for certain games in 1997. And so it, it escalated. In, in 1996, it was proven that there were games when both teams, say, had been bribed to throw the game. And so you'd see just this horrible quality of baseball. And so the reason I, I said it was really important was that it made people in Taiwan 
really suspect their league and just many people still prefer to watch Japanese professional baseball or American major league baseball. And I, I remember having conversations even in the 90s with people saying, why would I watch the Taiwan league when they might just be throwing the game when I could watch a better game on ESPN? I should say, though, that Perez has never been associated with this, and so I want to make that clear. There have been several foreign players who were American, Australian, Japanese players who did really get caught up in the game throwing and would be expelled. And the league tries to, to kind of pass this news on to other leagues around the world about these players. One note that I, I found recently about your uni president, Lions, was Tim Melville threw a no-hitter recently when you're the game MVP, you get to celebrate and do a dance. And he got to dance with Ultraman at the end of this game. Yeah, we need to put, we need to pull up this video if you haven't seen it. Tim Melville is, he's there with all of the cheerleaders. You know, there's still plenty of fans in the stands after the game is over. And they're, they've got a nice little placard behind him, you know, MVP of the game. He's got a lay around his neck. But Andrew, what I find really strange here and what maybe we can calling your scholarship for is the cheerleaders and the player are doing the dance along with everyone in the stands but Ultraman and his sidekick both of these futuristic robot type superheroes they're not dancing along and I I'm just find that is that typical there's so many layers here aren't there and you just skipped right over the part about having cheerleaders <laughs> um, so yes the CPBL has cheerleaders <laughs> The Lions have this great relationship with Ultraman and the company. Bandai is the, the Japanese company. Also, they, they have Kamen Rider. And so the Lions will have these fantastic promotional activities over a weekend where they'll wear Ultraman-themed uniforms for the entire weekend. And he threw his no-hitter during that weekend. And so that's why we have um, Ultraman and this other character here. I think because this is just once a year, Ultraman doesn't know the Lions MVP dance. I like that the fans are also dancing along. It's a good dance. The other uni president Lions mascots, Saba Boy. Saba Boy is a milkfish, but half of a milkfish because Saba Boy has been chopped in half, who dances to Mamma Mia and other songs along with a the Unipresident Lions uniform wearing lion mascot and is delightful. He really brings it, David. And you got to think that after being chopped in half and really just being a fish head walking around, that with your exposed, sliced off back, like open wound, I mean, you got to think he's in pain, but he seems perfectly fine. Saba Boy. It's what you might call breakdancing moves. I mean, he is horizontal at one point. He's a very good dancer. Well, Andrew, thank you for all of this, all this knowledge. I know that we may have taken you far afield of your normal area of scholarship when it comes to the CPBL to get into Bondi mascots and you know video game characters like Ultraman. But now let's get to the card itself and and soon to your other specialty of the painted cap cards. But let's start first with Tom Nieto 317 in this set. And it's not a great looking card for, for Tom. We've got a very low quality jersey. This is more of a pinny, warm-up kind of quality jersey. He's wearing his batting helmet while staring, you know, 20 degrees off to the right. Is this at Jay Baller Field? 
David? That's Jay Baller Memorial Stadium. <laughs> uh, yes, looking off into the distance, mouth slightly agape, unshaven, Tom Nieto. He's got a gym class uniform on. <laughs> not, not much interesting here. So not a great looking front of the card. As we get to the back, we have Tom Nieto, catcher, height 6'1", weight 205, right-handed batter and thrower. Drafted by the Cardinals in 1981 and acquired by trade, which we will talk about. Born October 27th, 1950 in Downey, California, and a home in Artesia, California. He went to Gar High School in Cerritos, California. Other famous alums, Morris Chestnut from Boys in the Hood, Brett Mm. Barbary, Shane Mack, and Al Osuna. Tom was not drafted out of high school. He went to Cerritos Community College. Other alums of Cerritos Community College, T.J. Hushmanzada, former wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals, Brett Barbary, and Al Osuna as well. So both those guys went to the same high school and then went on to Cerritos uh, Community College. Al Osuna also played in Taiwan, and he's unique for having played in two different professional leagues there. He played for the Tigers and the CPBL in 1998. But before that, he played for the Taichung Robots, of the Taiwan Major League in 1997 and 98. And this is a rival league that started in 97 that was trying to challenge the CPBL and used a more Taiwanese theme to contrast itself from the CPBL and their kind of Chinese league theme. The TML had great uniforms. They actually, I mean, this would today be considered cultural appropriation, but they they used indigenous people's clothing and patterns to make their uniforms for this league. And the, the lo- they spent a lot more time on the design of things like mascots and logos. But it was kind of a, an inferior quality league. And so it lasted for six years and then was merged into the CPBL for 2003. And Andrew, you sent us along the mascot from the, the robots. This mascot is delightful. It looks like a Mega Man villain. It's got a yeah. little mohawk robot with a baseball glove. I like it. So out of Cerritos Community College, Tom was drafted twice, but he didn't sign for either of those teams and instead transferred to Oral Roberts University. Oral Roberts University was in the news this year because of their run in the in March Madness. They made it to the Sweet 16 in 2021. Oral Roberts, the, the televangelist, founded the university in 1963, and the school has in, uh, I'll say, regressive honor pledge that students will not use tobacco, drugs, or alcohol, and will not engage in sexual activity, and a ban on homosexuality, and also social dancing is not permitted on campus. Oral Roberts himself, around the time of this card, claimed that God would call him home if he did not raise $8 million, and it worked. He raised $9 million in 1987, and lived to the ripe old age of 91, passed away in 2009. But Tom Nieto at Footloose University, no dancing allowed, was pretty good. He, uh, he, he led this team to a number five national ranking and was first team All-American in 1981. And that earned Tom a spot pretty high up in the draft considering his background at community college and at not necessarily a sports powerhouse university. He was drafted two spots after Tony Gwynn in the third round, 14 spots ahead of David Cohn. So big things expected from this young catcher. He went straight to Double A Arkansas, had a rough transition into professional ball, played in 62 games and hit 179, 
got his footing in 1982, hits 242, and is a really good fielder with a 994 fielding percentage, earns himself a promotion to AAA, and hits even better, 272 at AAA. So 1984 is the first year on the card, although he started started the year at AAA. He was playing very well again, solid defense, hitting 277, seven home runs, and finally gets that first call up to the majors in May. He was covering for Daryl Porter. The Cardinals' regular catcher was injured. And in his first game, Tom gets a, a double. And in his second game, he got his first career home run. And he hit three thirty three in those seven games. Porter comes back from injury. Tom gets sent back down to AAA. He earns another call-up in late July and stuck around for the rest of the season. He got his second home run, which was an inside-the-park homer. And in that in 33 games as a rookie, he hit 279 with three home runs, which turns out to be some of his best production in his career. <laughs> yes, his best average for his career. But here in his 33 games in his you know first season, this must make him a pretty good prospect in the Cardinals' eye. Yeah, they going into 1985, a big year for the Cardinals, and they planned to split the catching role between Nieto and... Daryl Porter. Nieto actually played more games than Porter, who was, had been an all-star, was a, a really great hitter, maybe was going through some, some personal problems at the time with, with drugs and alcohol. But Tom ended up playing in more games that year than Daryl Porter did. He played 95 games in 1985, both of them hitting the 220s. But Porter had more power, 10 home runs. Nieto had none. He did have two triples. Inside the park home run in his first year and a couple triples in his second, pretty good for a catcher. Tom was fine as a defensive catcher. Catcher was one of the weaker spots for this Cardinals team that ended up making it to the World Series with uh, six of their eight starters playing in the All-Star game, only their right field and catcher not playing in the All-Star game in 1985. So in those playoffs, Tom got one start in the NLCS and went 0 for 3. And did play in the World Series as well. He played in games four and five, didn't get any hits. He did have a walk and an RBI on an error in game four. And he ended up in a highlight reel, unfortunately, on the receiving end from Danny Jackson. Danny Jackson threw an immaculate inning. So an immaculate inning being striking out all three batters on nine pitches. Pretty rare occurrence. There's only been 102 immaculate innings in baseball history, and this is the only one to ever happen in the World Series. Yeah, so why would it be called an immaculate inning if the, you know, if the immaculate conception is that something came from nothing? An immaculate inning would seem to me to be that runs came from no contact. Now we're getting biblical. Are we going to go back to the Oral Roberts Hey, we, we did Oral Roberts. We're, we're, we're talking evangelical, so we're going, we're going to get a little theology today. I have a bone to pick with that. We're going to need to research that for a future episode, I think. Maybe it, people just like alliteration because alliteration is fun. Yeah, but that makes sense. Tom Nieto was the second strikeout in that, in that inning by Danny Jackson. He, was, he struck out looking. He probably also didn't like the end of this World Series or... The George Orta play that broke the hearts of Cardinals fans. Kansas City would win this World Series. Tom went 0 for 5 in the series. So going into 1986, 
Tom hoping to split time at least, but it looks like the Cardinals had other plans in mind. They had two other catchers in Mike Heath and Mike Lavalier coming up, and they make a move, and Tom Nieto ends up going to the Expos. He's traded for Fred Manrique. I remember Fred as a White Sox player, and he was also part of the trade for Sammy Sosa. The Expos, we've talked about their catching situation. They had just traded away Gary Carter for Floyd Yeomans and Mike Fitzgerald. The Expos used five different catchers this season. Tom only played in 30 games. He got his fourth career home run, but spent a lot of the season at AAA. And maybe the most notable thing about his tenure is that he ended up getting a spot in the 1987 top set. And because of that trade and the lack of pictures of Tom in a <laughs> in an Expos uniform, they had to paint on his Expos hat. Yes, and that brings us, Andrew, we want to bring you back in here to talk about the 1987 Tops Tom Nieto card, because this is a painted cap all-star card to me. I'm glad you thought so. I had a little bit of analysis I could offer on it. I felt that the techniques used in this work were logo size contraction, logo rotation counterclockwise, and bill perspective improvisation. It turns out that cap bills offer this great, really fertile territory for a lot of these tops artists to work with. You'll see also all sorts of different attempts at how to make it look good when you're painting the cap. The BPI, a real high BPI here. This, yeah, the bill of this hat is so unnatural. It's, I, can't, I don't think it's physically possible for a hat to actually look like this. This one doesn't even look airbrushed. This looks like they used whiteout. <laughs> they also did something with his shirt here. Like they made it like a cowl neck. Yeah, it's a cowl neck. Like he looks more like he's a, maybe an extra from Star Trek. It's really, really odd looking. What's going on here? actually felt like this technique is unknown to me in all my time looking at painted caps. Definitely stood out to me as some kind of pretty impressive artwork, and I just wasn't able to identify what the technique is. But I think the t-shirt, the, the glimpse of the t-shirt coming through is a nice touch, so I'd want to make sure the artist got credit for that. Yeah, they didn't add any buttons in here. or That's always one of the clear sides of a painted cap card is the like poorly drawn buttons. This one, <laughs> it almost looks like a polo shirt texture. It's, it's very weird. It, I, I'm just saying, I don't think his head's fitting through that hole on the top of that shirt. I don't think this, I don't think he can physically put this shirt on over his head because he's got a pretty, pretty big head, it looks like. But it, the collar also stands up on its own in this really interesting way, which is maybe Montreal fashion from 1987. It's a real beauty. And Andrew, you're, you do some extensive work with these, these painted caps and, and looking at all of at the many different painted caps throughout history. I thought that this was a thing that would have ended when you could take a picture from a phone and it's basically of a high enough quality for a baseball card. And yet, I saw you posted recently a 2021 card that is painted. There's a lot of pretty convincing work these days if you look at, at Topps cards where they're able to do digital work on the uniforms. It looks really, really good. So I was I was pretty amazed to see this as pretty reminiscent of 80s style cap work. Do you think it's the same guy who painted this Tom Nieto? <laughs> Bringing him back for one more job. Well, I'm I'm happy that this is, is still happening because 
I thought that this was from a bygone era, but it, it's good to know that, Andrew, you're going to have continued work for Painted Cap on Twitter for years to come. Yeah, that that work might outlast this podcast. <laughs> 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 well, we'll be we'll be together through it all, uh, Andrew, for de- for decades to come. So, going into the 1987 season and the 1988 Tops card, Tom is no longer with the Expos. He ends up traded to the Twins, and that takes us to the this way to the clubhouse. Tom was traded by the Expos to the Twins with Jeff Reardon in exchange for Neil Heaton, Yorkies Perez. Al Cardwood and Jeffrey Scott Reed, February third, nineteen eighty-seven. Wait, they added a middle name for Jeffrey Reed. I don't, that's that's a first. Yeah, the main pieces of this trade were Heaton and Reardon. This is a big deal trade for the Twins. They picked up one of the elite closers in baseball with Jeff Reardon. Montreal got Yorkies Perez, cousin of Pasquale and Melito. He later ended up playing in the major leagues, but not for a few years. Al Cardwood was a minor league pitcher at A-level. I don't think he ever made it to the big leagues. And Jeff Jeffrey Scott Reed was a backup catcher. The trade turned out pretty good for the Twins, much better than Tom Herr for Tom Berdansky. Because of Tom Nieto, not really, because of Jeff Reardon. Jeff Reardon led the National League in saves in 1985 and played in the 85 and 86 All-Star Games. In 1987, he would end up getting some Cy Young and MVP votes, and maybe most importantly, got a save in Game 7 of the World Series. Nieto, on the other hand, backup catcher, plays in 41 games, hits 200. He got his final home run of his Major League career that season, also spent some time at AAA, and I don't think he made the playoff roster. It looks like there's some controversy here, David, maybe some mystery. He maybe was the 25th man on the playoff roster for the Twins. According to a Star Tribune article from 2012, uh, this writer could not figure out who the 25th man was. He thought maybe it might be a, a pitcher who just didn't, didn't play in the World Series because only 24 players actually played for the Twins. But he did find a Tom Nieto World Series jersey for sale on, e- on eBay, which isn't necessarily proof that he played in it but who would have that made (laughs) you never know some real diehard tom nieto fan or a conspiracy theorist uh, trying to create proof moving in 1988 he only plays 24 games for the twins batting 067 did much better at triple a that year hitting 278 in 53 games and then after 1988 he's again Part of a trade where he's not the main attraction, he ends up traded to the Phillies. He was traded for Shane Raleigh, and Shane Raleigh, 1988 Tops legend. He was on the All-Star team in 1988 Tops, but he was traded with Twins villain Tommy Herr and Eric Bullock. Tom didn't do much in Philadelphia. He bounced between AAA and Philly. In the majors, he hit 150 in 1989 in 11 games and 167 in 1990. And after 1990, he was granted free agency. And then he played one more season in the Cardinals minor league system and retired from baseball in after the 1991 season. So closing the book on Tom Nieto's career, 251 games in the major leagues, 205 average, 24 doubles, five home runs, and a career 991 fielding percentage. So a good defensive catcher, a backup catcher playing for a handful of seasons in the majors. 
And after his playing career was done, he went right into coaching in 1992. There's a few interesting notes here about his coaching career. Between 1993 and 2004, he managed for a, a bunch of different organizations. He Managed in Charleston, the Greensboro Bats, Tampa Yankees, Palm Beach Cardinals. With the Greensboro Bats, he had this card that we'll have in the show notes where it's Tom Nieto and groundskeeper Mel Lanford, Dr. Dirt. <laughs> what a nickname. <laughs> yeah, I don't... <laughs> I, I tried to find more about Mel Lanford. I, I did... I went <laughs> deep into Mel Lanford information. <laughs> Because I was intrigued by Mel Lanford because why why does this card exist? If he is a groundskeeper of such renown, what's he doing in Greensboro, North Carolina with with a, a minor league team? You know, I know as a White Sox fan, there's a guy who we refer to as the sod father, Roger Bossard, who's a well-known groundskeeper. Why is Dr. Dirt not with the Yankees? Why isn't he a, a well-paid celebrity? <laughs> and he was hired away from the Lake Travis School District in Austin, Texas, after one of his baseball diamonds finished second in a national competition. Did anybody on this call know that baseball diamonds, there's a national baseball diamond dirt competition? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. It has, you know, it's Tom Nieto's card. He's the manager of the team. But the fact that he's sharing the twin billing with Dr. Dirt, who Dr. Dirt dressed not in a uniform just in like an izod izod polo and some dirty jeans and rocking some sunglasses he looks great another interesting note from tom's coaching career he spent some time with the melbourne reds in the australian baseball league and this was another winter league similar to the venezuelan league that ran from october to february so nieto after the season is done in greensboro goes to melbourne australia and the team at that time was connected with the Yankees, and they won the league title in 97 and 98. In 2004, Tom was hired on to Willie Randolph's Mets staff as catching instructor, and in 2008, he replaced Ricky Henderson as first base coach. He served in that position until 2008, when he was fired the same day as Randolph, and for a short period returned to the Twins organization, managing at AA and AAA from 2009 to 2011. So that takes us up to now, to recent history. So Andrew, Tom has been in the CPBL since 2018. Where, where is, what teams did he end up coaching there? He coached for the Lions in a couple different capacities in 2018 and 2019. And then for the last two years, uh, 2020, 2021, is coaching for the Wageman Dragons. And they have an 11-person coaching staff. He's technical director for the Dragons. And this coaching staff also includes former White Sox pitcher Greg Hibbard. Greg Hibbard, I believe, was referenced on this podcast as the the other pitcher in the Andy Hawkins no-hitter. He was the White Sox starter that day and went six perfect innings in that Andy Hawkins no-hitter loss. So what do we know about this team, about the Dragons? They're a renewed team. They were actually one of the original CPBL teams. Weichan is a big frozen food company that, that sponsored the Dragons, and they were very successful in the 1990s, but they were dissolved in 1999 after one of these match-fixing scandals. And that was a really bad one, where the manager was this uh, really celebrated manager in Taiwan's history, Xu Shengming. He was picking up his daughter at school, and a gangster who didn't like the fact 
that he wasn't throwing games stabbed him in the back uh, right in front of the school and that was kind of the turning point and they just the company just realized having this team was no longer a good promotion for their frozen foods and so the team was dissolved but they were allowed to come back in 2020 at the they had a minor league team and then in, this year in 2021 they're back at the top CPBL level so Andrew, now that we've taken a deeper look into Tom Nieto's career, what are your thoughts about him now that we've you know, seen from his playing career and his time as a coach? He seems like one of these classic just lifers in baseball who's played everywhere, who's coached everywhere, who must just love baseball. The idea of him, you know, coaching in the minor leagues in Taiwan working with catchers, perhaps, you know, serving as a technical director. That, that took him a long ways away from Oral Roberts University. But that's the one thing I'm really attracted to. In the CPBL, you get a, a lot of characters like this who aren't maybe superstars here, but they're really good players. They're good coaches. They know what they're doing. And this is a way for them to move up the ladder, see the world. And I really love these kinds of stories. And I think it's what your podcast also also does really well is bring out those kinds of stories. Yeah, thanks for that. I agree. I, I knew that we we're going to have to go through some of these guys who maybe their career doesn't have a lot. And I thought that Andrew bringing you on to talk about uh, Taiwanese baseball was an interesting way to maybe <laughs> go through some other parts of baseball in the world that, that I didn't really know anything about. So I really appreciate you joining us to talk about it. And it's something that makes me think a little bit differently about some of these guys where for a guy to just say, I'm going to leave the States and go live elsewhere. It's neat and kind of impressive that Tom would, would take that opportunity, especially because he was relatively well-respected as a coach in the minor leagues in the United States, all the way up to AAA. He just said, you know, what, I'm going to go try something else. So I'd, I'd be interested if in the future we find any interviews with Tom Nieto about his time overseas, and he's probably got some interesting stories to tell. I think so. I think it's a great league. And I, I think you're right that ultimately this tells me that this is a really interesting person with probably like a really wide range of r real openness to the world and wanting to just try new things. And this, again, I, I think your podcast is really good at bringing these kinds of stories out. Well, thank you for saying that. And we're in awe of the insight that you bring to the world in Painted Cap and all of the graphic techniques that help to tell a story as well. So where can listeners find you? At Painted Cap is the best place to see um, this analysis that goes up usually every other day. So thank you. Yeah, and we'll, it'd be great to have you back on to talk about a Tito Landrum or one of the many fantastic painted players in the 1988 top set. Yes, thank you, Andrew. We'll look forward to working with you in the future. David, thank you for... This story, and I'm really glad to have yet more mascots to add to our collection and stable of favorites. And thank you to you listening at home. If you're a good example of Bill Perspective Improvisation, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>